Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of dead bodies, as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By early February 1969, 23-year-olds Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki had been missing since January 24th, nearly two weeks. The police began searching the Truro Woods for Patricia Walsh's car, a powder blue Volkswagen bug that was last seen abandoned among the trees. And while they didn't find the car, they made another ghoulish discovery on February 8th the butchered remains of an unknown female body left to rot in a shallow grave. As the Provincetown medical examiner tried to identify the corpse, police officers across the state of Massachusetts searched for 24-year-old Tony Costa. He was likely the last person who saw the missing women, and that made him a suspect. But on that chilly February day, The police were no closer to finding Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki than they had been two weeks earlier, and time was not on their side. With every passing minute, one thing was becoming more and more certain. Those two women were dead. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on the murder of Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki. Last week, we covered the investigation into their disappearance. This week, we'll cover how these murders became linked to a series of brutal attacks in Provincetown. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden... Just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The gruesome discovery in the Truro Woods threw the investigation into overdrive. It wasn't clear how the butchered body was connected to Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki, and the police were determined to find out the truth. After spending the morning exhuming bags of human remains, a state trooper who will call Jeffrey Clemens for his privacy was filled with a newfound sense of dread-induced urgency. This crude grave was found only a stone's throw away from Patricia Walsh's car, and that didn't seem like a coincidence. 
Clemens decided to recheck the last location where the two women had been seen, the rooming house on Standish Street in downtown Providence. The officer didn't bother to clean the soil from his clothes, and as he stepped into the doorway of the inn, he could smell the faintest odor of rot still clinging to his jacket. Afternoon, officer. Seems I've been entertaining a lot of cops these past few days. I just need to check on a couple things. I heard Tony Costa left some of his belongings behind. Are they in his room? His room is mostly cleared out, but I've put his stuff in a box. He still hasn't come back to give me his room key, let alone all of the things he left here. Do I look like I run a storage facility? When you cleared out his room, did you notice anything strange? Any suspicious items? Oh, I don't know. He left a hair dryer, a pair of work boots that were just covered in mud. Oh, and a piece of rope. I thought it was a clothesline at first, but it was too thick. I'm not really sure why he had it. I need to see that, now. Mrs. Morton disappeared into her office and returned with a small cardboard box. She rummaged through it, eventually producing the rope. Clemens held it and turned it over in his hands. As he twisted it, he noticed a dull smear of red across the braided coil. Clemens was no expert, but it certainly looked like blood. He quickly pocketed the rope as evidence and asked Mrs. Morton for the rest of Tony Costa's items. She was glad to hand them over. By 9 p.m., Clemens returned to Provincetown Courthouse and put the evidence in a secure location. Then he returned home to his wife and daughters. Meanwhile, the station was populated with exhausted police officers. Most of them had spent the day traveling between Provincetown and the Truro Woods, asking anyone they could find about Patricia Walsh and Marianne Moisaki. The investigation was already planning another search of the forest, and Clemens' new evidence posed a welcome development to the case. But for now, the officers milled about the station, taking a brief moment to rest. Provincetown Sergeant James Meads slumped over his desk. It was late, and he struggled to focus on the pages of notes spread out before him. He knew as well as anyone else that without Tony Costa, the investigation couldn't move forward. But luckily, he didn't have to wait long. The sudden, sharp trill of his phone shot him out of his daze. <clears throat> Provincetown Police. This is Tony Costa. I know you've been looking for me. I'd like to come in tomorrow and speak to you guys, just to clear everything up. T tony you're certainly a hard man to find. Yes, absolutely. We're anxious to speak with you. Where are you? I'm in town, staying with my mother. I can come in tomorrow morning if that's alright with you. Yes, that would be fine. How about this? I'll bring you in myself. Give me your address and I'll be waiting out front at 11 o'clock. It was risky to wait through the night. Tony Costa could make a run for it, stalling the investigation in its search for answers. And when Sergeant Meads knocked on the door of a small apartment building on Conant Street, he hardly expected anyone to answer. But to his surprise, he saw a young man descend the stairs and throw open the door. Tony Costa. He was handsome, with jet black hair and a strong mustache. He looked at Sergeant Meads with the expression of someone ready to set the record straight. The two walked swiftly back to Sergeant Meade's cruiser and began their way back to the police station. But during the trip, 
Meads noticed the air of confidence waver in the young passenger. Tony Costa couldn't sit still. He fidgeted and shifted in his seat, wringing his hands and plucking at the seams of his jacket. Hey, kid, is everything okay over there? I just want to get this over with. You guys are already messing up my reputation. My friends told me you've been asking about me, and now everyone thinks I'm some bad guy. Well, are you a bad guy? No. I just... I just know you guys think I am, but all I did was help those two girls. One of them, Patricia, needed money to go get an abortion, okay? I know they were headed to Montreal next. Okay, well, if you were just helping them, why would you be worried about seeming like a bad guy? Because... Because I have their car. Sergeant Meads shifted in his seat, exhaling heavily as he mulled this over. Tony Costa could be a regular guy mixed up in a horrible situation, but the car, that was suspicious. The two sat in silence for the rest of the trip. Provincetown Police Station was bustling with activity. Everyone knew that Tony Costa was on his way there, and everyone wanted a piece of that action. State and local police gathered in the small building, hoping to find a moment to speak to the mysterious young man. One person was especially determined, Lieutenant Bernie Flynn. Flynn was a notorious interrogator, known to be aggressive and unflinching in his questions. If anyone was going to get information out of Tony Costa, it would be Flynn. The whole station knew it. So, after Tony Costa was brought in and questioned by a few local officers, Flynn was given the right-of-way. Quickly, the lieutenant ushered the young man into an office. So, Tony, why don't you explain to me why you have Patricia Walsh's car? She sold it to me. Here, I have the bill of sale. From his coat pocket, Tony produced a small yellow sheet of paper. Sure enough, it listed that Patricia Walsh sold Tony her blue Volkswagen. At the bottom of the sheet were two signatures, Tony's and Patricia's. Tony said Lieutenant Flynn could keep the bill of sale if he liked, and with a nod from the officer, Tony continued explaining his side of the story. Tony said that he first met the girls on January 24th, the night they arrived in Provincetown. The girls had told Tony that they needed money and were headed to Montreal and wanted to sell Patricia's car. Why were they going to Montreal? Well, I didn't want them to get in trouble, but Patricia was pregnant and wanted an abortion. So I bought the car, but I let them keep it for a week so they could do what they needed to do. When they were done, they parked it in the Churro Woods for me to pick up. Tony, the story doesn't make sense. They could have sold that car for twice as much money to a used car dealer. And they could have sold it in Providence. Why come all the way to Provincetown? Okay, okay, listen. I was lying about all that. Let me tell you the true story. I sold those girls a pound of hash in August, but they didn't have the money for it. When I saw them again, I made them pay me what they owed. And all they had to offer was the car. So your first story is false now? Let's just say I believe you. Where did they go next? They were going up to Canada to sell more hash. They were running away from their lives in Providence. Lieutenant Flynn was growing exasperated. 
This story felt flimsy at best, but Tony Costa remained unfazed as he continued to explain. Tony told Flynn that the two girls had driven the Volkswagen up to Burlington, Vermont, where they then boarded a plane. But then he changed his story one more time. The plane was going to California, not Canada. And one or both of the girls was getting an abortion after all. Tony said he picked up the car from the airport parking lot sometime later. And now the car is in a service station in Burlington. I left it there. Tony, why would you leave this car in Vermont? Don't you want to use it? It's your car now, right? I guess, but I don't really need it. Now that it's connected with this whole investigation, I don't really want to use it. None of this made sense. None of it explained why the car was first found in the woods or why Patricia Walsh's information was found torn up and strewn across the forest floor. Lieutenant Flynn slammed his fist on the table. He looked at Tony with a hard expression and leaned forward. Tony, where are those girls? I told you, they're in Canada. You have me confused. First they're in Montreal, then they're in Vermont, then they're in California. You're lying. Where are they? Where are these girls? What are you saying? I killed them? Is that it? I never said anything about them being dead. I think this interview is done. As Lieutenant Flynn left the interrogation room, he looked at the small bill of sale in his hand. The signatures at the bottom looked similar. Too similar, in fact. The more he examined the paper, the more it seemed that both signatures, Tony's and Patricia's, were made by the same person. Coming up, the police interview Tony Costa's friends and discover a massive break in the case. Stay with us. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. As February 1969 dragged on, Provincetown police continued searching the Truro Woods for any other shallow graves. Lieutenant Bernie Flynn also had a group of officers check on Tony Costa's statement. Flynn was sure that the young man was lying. He just had to prove it. 
Provincetown police asked around to see if anyone in Burlington or at the airport had spotted the missing women. No one had. There was no record of them taking a flight. Tony Costa's story was flimsy, all right. And while that wasn't enough evidence to arrest the young man, Lieutenant Flynn had local officers watch Tony's movements. The lieutenant also wanted to check if the signature on the bill of sale for Patricia Walsh's car was genuine. The officer sent it out to the FBI for testing. For the time being, all he could do was wait for the results. For his part, Tony Costa offered the police one more helpful piece of information. The location of the powder blue Volkswagen Beetle. On February 14th, state troopers Jeffrey Clemens and another state trooper hauled the vehicle from Vermont back to Cape Cod for examination. The interior of the Volkswagen looked normal enough. The seats were clean, if gently used. There was no sign of a struggle, but this was hardly comforting. Surveying the seemingly unremarkable car the next morning, state police chemist Melvin Topjan knew there was more than meets the eye. Someone had recently cleaned the inside of the car, but not well enough to hide the remaining flecks of red that peppered the steering wheel. Taking samples from the wheel, the seats, and the window trim, Topjan found traces of blood all over the car. Even the window scraper in the trunk tested positive for blood residue. The vehicle had been the site of a horrible attack. Topjan relayed these findings to the officers. But this wasn't the only piece of evidence that the chemist tested. So, I ran the same benzidine tests on that length of rope you guys found in Tony Costa's room, and the thing lit up like a Christmas tree. Blood, female hair, lipstick. This rope was used for something nasty. Did you check the boots we gave you? Oh, yes. I checked the dirt on the soles, and it was a positive hit. Blood. This discovery was huge, but the investigation wasn't over. Without the bodies of the two missing women, the police didn't have enough to arrest the young man. But each new clue brought Tony Costa under more and more scrutiny. The investigation split into two groups. A massive team of men continued wandering through the Truro woods, looking for Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki. And another smaller group began interviewing Tony Costa's friends. Bernie Flynn led the way. He hoped that Tony's friends could give the police a better idea of the young man's personality. And maybe someone might have seen Tony Costa with the two missing women. In a few short days, Flynn struck gold. On February 25th, he met a girl who we'll call Chandra for her privacy. Chandra was a high school student, but she knew Tony well. He was kind of in love with me. He would write these letters about me even when he was dating other people. I, I didn't really like it, but I liked being around him as a friend. What do you do together? Well, um, I really don't want to get in trouble for this. Don't worry, you're not in any trouble. Tell me. Well, Tony had a little garden where he grew marijuana, out in the Truro woods. He hid a lot of stuff out there too, drugs I mean. He would bury boxes and jars out there, and then when he wanted to sell it, he would dig it up. I came with him a bunch of times. Why would you go with him? Tony acted like he got scared when he went out there. 
He wouldn't let me get out of the car with him, but we would drive out to his garden and he would run out to get what he needed. Were you the only person he took out there? No, it wasn't just me. Tony took girls out there all the time. Chandra, I need you to show me where this garden is, right now. The next day, as the two of them drove through the woods, Flynn's mind began to race. Local police had scoured the forest for clues, but if this secret marijuana garden had been a blind spot in the investigation, it could hide any number of secrets. After a few minutes driving in silence, Chandra pointed to a small gravel path that led deep into the trees. Flynn swung the cruiser into the woods. He felt a chill move up his spine. This road wasn't far from the shallow grave where the unidentified body was found. The pair got out of the car. Chandra explained that the garden was through the woods on a winding road. By this point, a freezing rain had descended on the woods, and sharp droplets pricked at Flynn's face as he stepped into the darkness. Flynn and Chandra followed a winding trail down some 300 yards until it opened up into a large natural clearing. Chandra pointed to the far corner of the space, explaining that this was where Tony's garden was. Flynn could hardly contain his excitement. Somehow, the massive team of men searching the woods had never found this spot. Flynn could sense that this place carried a massive secret, and he was determined to find out what it was. A team of officers began searching the area the very next day. After several days without finding any evidence, Bernie Flynn returned to the clearing with a group of men, including State Trooper Clemens, Sergeant Meads, and another officer, Chief Cheney Marshall. The ground was still dusted with frost from the morning, giving the space a soft white luster. The men fanned out across the open field. Clemens and Chief Marshall strode toward an edge of the clearing which led to a gentle sloping incline. The chief felt an unexplained pull to that spot. If Tony Costa took the two girls here, chances are that he tried to kill them both at the same time. That means that one of the girls might have tried to run. The clearing slopes upward over on that side. If one of the girls ran, she might have wanted to get onto higher ground for safety. Good call, Clemens. Clemens led the chief to the base of a hill. One thing caught his eye, a large leafless tree with a broken branch. Its cracked limb rested against the ground at a sharp angle. Chief, take a look at this. Something happened here. Look at the nexus of the crack, right there. Those are fibers. Rope. Do you think the girls could have been strung up? Bingo. Check the ground. I think this is the spot. Clemens knelt at the base of the tree, gently swiping away clumps of frozen leaves. He discovered more rope, stained a familiar shade of dark red. Clemens moved methodically around the tree, looking for more evidence. Suddenly, Clemens noticed something small and glinting under the leaves. He brushed them aside and found a single earring, a square of black onyx set inside a gold frame. Clemens looked at Chief Marshall with a mix of dread and recognition. 
This had to be the place. The state trooper began clearing away more leaves from the spot where he found the earring, tossing them aside with growing urgency. The cold air made his breath painful and ragged. As he cleared the space, he finally saw it. A rectangular depression in the earth the size of a small grave. Clemens called out for a shovel. The earth was partially frozen, and the tree's roots wove through the unyielding soil. The shovel was too large and awkward for this dig, and Clemens quickly had to use his hands. He dug into the ground until his hands were tired, with nothing to show for it. But suddenly, his fingers felt something soft and yielding buried in the dirt. Ugh! Jesus Christ! What is it? Something's down there. I touched its... skin. Oh, God. You need to get the rest of the search party back here. Now! Clemens brushed aside the patch of dirt and instantly recoiled in disgust. Peeking from the earth was a hand, its flesh ghostly white. A delicate ring of orange and turquoise beads sat on the withered pinky finger. Clemens began tossing the soil away in large swipes, clawing at the earth with increasing urgency. The arm had been severed from the body, but the officer knew that he would soon find more human remains. Flynn started digging too and soon saw a clump of brown hair sticking out of the ground. He knelt down and softly brushed away the soil surrounding the hair, gently nestling his hands around the mass that remained uncovered. Gently, he dislodged the mass and pulled it out. In his cupped hands was the severed head of a young woman. The cheeks had been badly bruised, the mouth open in a silent scream. Flynn brushed the soil from the head's lips and eyes and stood in shock as he met the familiar face of Marianne Wysocki. The men continued digging as the rest of the search party gathered around and came across a now familiar scene. A severed and mutilated torso, legs, and random chunks of flesh thrown unceremoniously into the pit. These were the butchered remains of Marianne's body. Soon, Flynn found a second pair of severed legs and the entire upper body of a woman with the head attached, Patricia Walsh. With hardened dismay, the officer pulled all of the remains out of the pit, placing them on the forest floor. It seemed like they had reached the bottom of the grave, but the men were confused. Both Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki were buried recently, and their bodies had been well-preserved by the frozen ground. But that didn't explain the foul stench that now emanated from the pit. Clemens thought they should keep digging. Hey, Flynn, mind lending a hand? I don't think we're done here. Sure, let me hop down. Jesus, that reeks! I know. Here, help me out. Let's figure out where this smell is coming from. The two men dug into the cold dirt, and soon they found the final gruesome discovery. At the bottom of the pit rested a third body. These human remains were nearly black with months of decay. The body had been chopped up, but the pieces had been placed near each other in such a way to mimic a reclining position. 
The skin on the corpse's face had peeled back, exposing the teeth in a ghoulish smile. The men gasped and gagged from the putrid stench that came from the grave, but soon they unearthed the entirety of this third body. The group of policemen stood over the butchered pieces of three female bodies. Without saying a word, they all knew what would come next. Tony Costa was going down. Coming up, the police discover the identity of the two unnamed bodies, and Tony Costa gets put away for good. Stay with us. Now, back to the story. By March 6th, what began as the search for two missing women had exploded into a hunt for a serial killer. The bloody rope found in Tony Costa's room matched the rope found at the crime scene. The police were convinced he was the man responsible for these gruesome deaths. But up until this break in the case, Tony Costa could come and go as he pleased. The police were watching him, but they couldn't legally stop him from leaving Provincetown. And as it turned out, he had left. He's in Boston. We've got some state officers over there who think they saw him going into an apartment building on Marlboro Street. We can still nab him, right? Boston isn't so far away. We sent a few guys out to the house to check it out. God, if he runs. Well, here's hoping he doesn't read the newspaper. In Boston, Lieutenant William Broderick and two other state police officers drove to meet with a man we'll call Timothy Donatelli, Tony Costa's brother. Timothy worked at a small liquor store near Marlboro Street. Hi, Tim. I hear you've got some family staying with you. Tony Costa? Tony? No way. I haven't seen him in, like, ten days. He's up in Provincetown. Timothy, now would be a very bad time to lie to me. We know he's been living in your apartment on Marlboro Street. Is he there right now? Oh, come on. I already told you. He's not there. I called him up just yesterday at his mom's place out in P-Town. He's not here, okay? And you guys are supposed to be Boston's best? Broderick didn't buy this for a second. He and his men left Timothy at work and drove straight to Marlboro Street. Broderick had a hunch, and he tapped the buzzer for apartment three. A young man, tall with a dark mustache, walked down the stairs. As he saw that a police officer was waiting for him, his gait faltered. But only for a moment, as nonchalantly as he could, the man opened the door. Afternoon. What's your name? Um, Timothy Donatelli. Want to try that again? We just spoke with Timothy at the liquor store. It's... it's... Tony Costa. And just like that, the police had their man. Broderick arrested Tony for theft of an automobile and held him at the Boston police station until Flynn and Clemens could drive down and pick him up. It was already dark by the time the two officers arrived at the station. Tony Costa was bizarrely calm as he was handcuffed and placed in the back of the police cruiser. During the drive back to Provincetown, Tony sat in silence, gazing out the window. But Flynn and Clemens didn't mistake Tony's silence for innocence. They had proof that this young man had butchered four women, 
dumping their remains into unmarked graves, and now he could be put away for good. It would take a year for Tony Costa's murder trial to take place, and in that span of time, Provincetown became a hub of rumors and morbid intrigue. The murder trial was started and stopped, rescheduled and recessed over and over again, but in May 1970, the case against Tony Costa began. One of the most damning discoveries came from the autopsy, which showed that Marianne and Patricia had been shot with a gun, most likely a 22 caliber pistol. This was a darkly comforting development for the police. Both women had died before being butchered. Tony Costa's friends confirmed that he owned a 22 pistol, but not only that, several people told investigators that Tony had offered to sell the gun to them shortly after the two women disappeared. No one knew where the gun was, but it didn't really matter. Tony Costa was guilty. And after a week-long trial, the jury made it official. Tony Costa was sentenced to life in prison for two counts of first-degree murder. There are still some mysteries in the events that unfolded in late January 1969. Though Tony was repeatedly questioned, his story kept changing even after his conviction. The police knew that Tony Costa first met Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki on the evening of January 24th. The trio went to a local bar for drinks. That first night was uneventful, even normal. The following morning, Tony left a note for the two women, asking them if he could hitch a ride so he could pick up a check. Another construction worker who worked with Tony testified that he saw Tony sitting in the front passenger seat of a powder blue Volkswagen Beetle heading towards Truro with two women. It's unclear when exactly Tony led the two women to the woods, but it was in this spot near Tony's marijuana garden where the attack took place. Tony shot Patricia Walsh in the back of the neck, killing her. It seems that Marianne Wysocki was also shot, but only wounded, enabling her to run from her attacker before being shot again in the head and falling to the ground dead. It didn't take long to kill these two women, but Tony Costa's work was not done. Both bodies were dragged to the site of their eventual burial. There, Tony strung them both up by their feet, tying the rope around the bough of a tree. He used an axe or similarly blunt chopping tool to sever their limbs. He used smaller knives to slice away at their flesh, tearing their skin off and stabbing their organs. Both bodies showed evidence of sexual violence, though the examiner was unable to determine whether this occurred before or after the victims were dead. There was no evidence that either woman had been pregnant or had had an abortion, though authorities already knew that story was a cover-up. Finally, once the massacre was complete, Tony Costa disposed of the remains. A few hours of work, and Tony Costa had butchered and buried two more victims. Tony Costa lived the rest of his life in prison, though it would prove to be a short life. On May 12, 1974, a guard at Walpole Prison found Tony Costa in his cell, hanging from a crude noose he had fashioned out of a belt. He's now buried in an unmarked grave next to his mother in Provincetown. 
In the investigation into Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki's disappearance, Tony Costa's two other female victims fell by the wayside. There wasn't enough tangible information to connect him to their deaths, and he was never formally charged with their murders. But in tandem with the investigation, the police were finally able to identify these two unnamed bodies. The first was a 17-year-old girl named Susan Perry, who had disappeared shortly after Labor Day in 1968. Her parents had never formally reported her missing, likely assuming she'd run away from home. The second body, whose blackened remains lay at the bottom of the grave shared with Patricia and Marianne, was an 18-year-old woman named Sydney Monson who had been missing for nearly a year. Her family had almost given up looking for her. She disappeared from her grocery store job in May 1968 and never returned. These were females who had no reason to know each other. They lived unique lives with their own plans for the future. Sydney Monson, Susan Perry, Patricia Walsh, and Marianne Wysocki were four names that never needed to be mentioned in the same breath, until Tony brought them all to the same gruesome fate. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki's disappearance, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book In His Garden, The Anatomy of a Murderer by Leo Damore, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Eddie Lee, Kai Jordan, and Julian Smith. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>